Good. It's good to see you here today. And uh, this is the last in our present series of What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? The Positive Impact of Christianity in History. And we'll come to that in a few moments' time. But I'm very excited, and if you can, I'd like you to spread the word about the new series. You'll see it in the Revival Times that we're starting next Sunday at the five o'clock service. Uh, What we're going to be looking at in the next series from next Sunday is the greatest sermon that was ever preached. No, not Colin Dye or Bruce Atkinson, but the greatest sermon that was ever preached. They call it the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there is so much in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that teaches us the quality of spirit-filled living. And so we are going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, in the coming weeks. I'll be doing a lot of study on it. Um, if you think you know the Sermon on the Mount, then come along because you don't. I thought I knew the Sermon on the Mount, and then I started s- uh, studying some of the great scholars and preachers on it, and my eyes have just been open, not just to what the Sermon on the Mount means, but how to apply it in our lives. You know, the current book that, that I launched, uh, No More Law, and today's the last day you can get it, by the way, at the price of £10, and then next week it goes back to its normal price. But in that book, I talk about No More Law, and the Sermon on the Mount is uh, not, not the New Testament law. Some people talk about the Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, Moses received the Old Testament law on the Mount, and Jesus on the Mount gave us the New Testament law. Absolute nonsense, not at all. But having said that, we live free from the law. We go, and Jesus is our model, and he teaches us principles of how to live the Spirit-filled life. Principles. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is dealing very much with heart issues, isn't he? I mean, he says, look, just because you don't steal, do you steal in your heart? Just because you don't commit adultery in action, what about your heart? Don't come and praise the Lord and bring sacrifice if there's something wrong between your heart and your brother's heart. You know, it talks about prayer and the heart of prayer. You know, do your prayer in secret and your Father will reward you. Do it in front of everybody externally and you know, why are you doing it? So the Sermon on the Mount is so wonderful. It's full of motivations and, it, and you know, and, and it looks at such things as the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And in those Beatitudes, and Beatitude comes from the, it's the old English word for blessed. And blessed means happy. And so it starts with those number of how happy is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so if we can get the Sermon on the Mount operating its principles, not laws, if we can get the principles and soak in those principles, it's going to change our life. It's going to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in spirit-filled living. Let those principles become part of who you are. Then whatever situation you are in, the principles of the Sermon on the Mount that are inside you will cause you to respond in the right heart manner. You'll also be able to check the issues of your heart. So that's what we're doing. Spread the word because it really is one of the most important topics that you could teach on. And I'm so excited that Colin's given me the freedom to do that in the coming weeks. It's going to be very, very strategic and important for our lives. Um, Now, this today, in this last of this series, we've been looking at what if Jesus had never been born? 
I think so often, especially Christian nations, take Jesus for granted and take his influence and and his teaching and his model through the authentic church, through the ages, for granted. I've already said that, you know, I think that today in Western Europe we have these secularists uh, and their belief system which is kick God out of the uh, schools, kick God out of the state. We don't need Christian religion as if the quality and greatness of Western nations was created without Christ or Christianity. No, the secularists have really adopted many things that were brought and created through the influence of the authentic Christian church. We looked at the image of God to begin with, Christ and the value of human life, and how without Christ and his authentic church, we find in nations of the world even today that without Christ's teaching and the influence of the authentic church in their nations, human life is very cheap. Think of non-Christian nations, and most of the time you'll find that the value of human life is a lot cheaper than it is in nations that for centuries have grown up on the teaching that every human being is made in the image of God, and that God so loved the world that he became a human being. That's how much he dignified it. And we looked at the mercy for the poor, and we looked at Christ's teaching on the poor and how it influenced authentic Christianity through the ages. And so many of the great charities that we have today uh, have Christian roots, like Dr. Bernardo's, you know, the Salvation Army is a Christian movement. Uh, Things like the parables of... um, the Good Samaritan, and we have the Samaritan, we went right through history, and we saw the charitable works. Again, if you look at nations not brought up in Christian values, uh, although they do have types of charity, the poor are often despised uh, and often pushed aside. I mean, you can think of a place like India brought up on the caste system. You know, we can have illustrations. I went right into the heart of one of the worst slums in in the world, in Egypt, and uh, these things in Western nations you know, with the built of Christian influence. Uh, well, there's still a long way to go in eradicating poverty, I know, but we've come a long way. And the influence of education, Christ was an educator, he was a rabbi, he was a teacher. We looked at that. And freedom for all, last week we said that the basis of Western civil liberty has come from the Christian gospel that is an invitation. Uh, we believe that Christianity is spread through people's choice. We invite people to receive Jesus. If they uh, decide not to, we don't threaten them with uh, a sword or anything like that. Now, uh, uh, other religions have expanded purely by um, making people submit through force to their religion or pay the price. Now, of course, when we speak about this, Christians or so-called Christians haven't always lived up to the teaching and model of Christ. We know that. Uh, But I've been talking about authentic Christianity, New Testament Christianity through the ages has. And so we come to this final session, and I'd encourage you, if you haven't been, many of you I can see have come week by week, but if you haven't come to some of these sessions, have a check on our website and, and have a look and see if there's anything that's your interest, because we need to know what our heritage is. We need to be able to say, when everybody's saying, we don't need the church here, we don't need the church there, we've got to say, we've got to say do you know where you'd be without the church? You have no idea where you'd be without Christ the church. What you're trying to get rid of has been salt and light for generations, and, brought, and, and the salt has brought a preservative quality And now as we see people slipping away from the gospel in education and society, they wonder why there's problems. 
They wonder why there's problems. So this is a very important topic that we've been looking at. Before I get into the next one, I just want to bring greetings to you from our senior minister, Colin Dye. He is in Brazil. I was in touch with him today. And uh, he has been at a cell conference in Sao Paulo, Brazil. There was 3,000 people in the conference. And so he's been ministering there. He's also going to go to Recife, where we have started a church right on the edge of a flavela, which is a very, very poor area. In, in the town, and the church is growing. If you're at our leadership day in January, we'd have seen pictures and reaching out and feeding and the poor and, and homeless, and the gospel is growing, and Colin's going to build that work up. So do keep him in your prayer. We have very strong links with Brazil as a nation and Brazilian ministries, especially Colin over the, over the many years. We have Brazilian ministries and churches based here in London. So he's out there with his apostolic mandate and anointing, taking the vision of God that God's given us into Brazil. So let's remember him as he uh, seeks to extend the gospel. But today, the title that I was given, or I gave myself, was The Beauty of Morality, Christianity's Contribution to Morals and Family Life. And as I began to look at that this week, I thought to myself, well, I've really spoken a lot about this, actually, Um, I've spoken about the importance of children and, and, and the elderly in the image of God, the value of human lives. I've spoken about the poor. I've spoken about education and society. I've spoken about freedom. And so when I actually looked at it, I thought to myself, I'll be covering so much ground here that I don't think it's necessary. The whole message of these, these weeks has been Christianity's contribution to, what, am I, what might I say, uh, the, the morality of a nation or the strength of a nation or the godliest of the nation and, and family values. So what I've decided to do is to t- keep the theme, but to, to move slightly to talk about the importance of Christian revivals through the ages to the health of society. What if there'd never been any Jesus? What if he'd never come? If Jesus had never come, we'd have never experienced the great revivals that have taken place in history in various nations uh, right up to the present date. I mean, right up, right up to the present date, right now, you know, in South America, the last 30 years or so, revival has been flowing. A generation ago, there was hardly any spirit-filled Christians in places like Brazil. Now, the South America, so many of them are leading the way in Revival. Revival is changing those nations. And look at how places like Brazil are prospering. And there's a direct link with the prosperity of a, nature, of a nation and revival. I know it's a lot behind the scenes, but you think about the revival that's spreading in China. And it's yet, in a sense, in many ways to surface, but it will one day. We'll see it change uh, the, the face, the political face of China. It's going to do it. We think of nations in Africa that have experienced strong revivals and, and how it's changed for the good, those nations. So I thought to myself, really, I, I should be talking about revivals, not just the salt and light of Christians through the ages, because even many of the things that I've spoken about in former um, uh, teachings have been a result of revival. When I spoke about all the charitable work and the Sunday schools in the 1800s and the Victorian age, all that came out of a revival that took place by the Methodists in the 1700s. And so we hear a lot about revival and revivals. And uh, to be honest with you, I got a bit tired of revival and revivals. 
about 10 years ago, I wrote my first book on revivals, Land of Hope and Glory, uh, British revivals through the ages, right from the moment when Christianity first came to the shores of Britain and the Celtic church evangelists and right through to the Hebridean revival. And so I'm going to look at, I've chosen two of these revivals just to highlight some things to you today. The book is only $4.99 um, for paperback and I think $5.99 for hardback. So if you're interested in, in looking at the history of God's visitation in Britain, you might want to get that at some stage. And so I've chosen two men and two revivals to highlight and how they changed the face of a nation. The first that I'm going to look at is George Fox. Have you ever heard of the Quakers? The Quakers. Well, George Fox was the apostolic pioneer of what we know to be the Quakers. He was born in 1624. I don't want to get too much into dates and things. This is just broad, sort of like capital letters that I'm bringing to you today. And George Fox lived through one of the, the most difficult and bloody times of this nation. He lived through the Civil War. Do you remember Roundheads and Cavaliers and Charles I and, uh, and, 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 all the, and Cromwell and the great battles as England descended into horrendous civil war and, and we had Catholic persecution on the one side and we had Protestant legalism on the other side. It was a terrible time for the nation. And into, into this came George Fox and what would be known as the Quakers. Not only would they leave uh, a, a lasting legacy in this nation that, that's still here today, and I'll talk about that, but out of them and their teaching, the United States sense of freedom and liberty would be born. And it came out of a revival. So we'll talk a bit about the man and the movement and the legacy, and then I'm going to move on to somebody else. George Fox. William Penn, a very famous man. In fact, he, he, he was the founder of Pennsylvania in the United States of America. Three miles away from where I live, just outside on the outside of London, you can go and visit his, his grave. And his grave is in this great Quaker site. And, um, and in, in that Quaker site, it's an ancient Quaker site from the times of when the Quakers were first moving, uh, you, you can see, um, oh, the, you know the Mayflower? The pil well, the Mayflower was taken and the wood from the Mayflower was taken to make a chapel there. It's that old. Now, William Penn is famous, and I suppose I should come to him later, because he started a really strong move to America, which would end up in American democracy. For example, the idea of freedom to believe what you want to believe, the idea of one vote for one person. And I'll come back to him, but he said this of George Fox, the most awful... That means awesome. The most awesome living reverend frame I ever felt or beheld was the prayer of George Fox. And truly it was a testimony. He knew and lived nearer to the Lord than other men. For they that know him most will see most reason to approach him with reverence and fear. Rufus Jones said, George Fox is the first real prophet of the English Reformation. George Fox himself in 1647 said this, and I saw the harvest white and the seed of God lying thick in the ground as ever it did. Wheat that was sown outwardly and none to gather it. And for this I mourned with tears. I said that George 
was, was, was born into a world of religious revi- uh, rivalry. We've t- been speaking about authentic Christianity. But, you know, sometimes Christianity in this country was not authentic. It, it, it did not follow the teachings of Christ. And often it would become more, more political than spiritual. And during this time, there were three main religious groups that were vying for power. We had the Roman Catholics, we had the Church of England, and we had the Protestant Puritans. And, uh, and all trying to be in control of the government because they knew that if they were in control, so their religion would be in control. Because wrongly, in their minds, they felt that they should use outward government power to extend and protect their religious faith. Last week, I spoke about the separation between church and state as very, very important. The church is God's institution, but God also gave us the state as God's institution. And they're to work together, but there's problems when the church begins to run the state. And there's problems, as we're finding out right now in our generation, when the state decides to tell the church what to do. There needs to be a healthy dialogue uh, between them. Well, there wasn't at this time. Uh, They were put together. Your politics and your religion were one. And whoever was in government in these days would impose their religious faith on others. And they would curtail or prevent others from having the freedom of their faith. Now, the civil war between Parliament and the King Charles I... Uh, Charles I believed in the divine right of kings. He was a Roman Catholic, yet his parliament was mainly Protestants. And uh, they, they began these series of civil wars that ravished the nation. The radical Puritan movement that had once been a move in the spirit had itself become rigid and political. The flame and the fire of men like John Knox had had left the movement, and cold conformity had come into the Protestant church. You know, we need to learn that moves of God often grow cold. I'm not naming any names, but you can think of some denominations or churches even, which at one time were so on fire, but over the history they become just shells or memorials to what once was powerful and full of fire that has gone. We have to be aware that here in Kensington Temple, we should never take what we have, as little as it is compared to what we could have, we should never take it for granted. The moment a church takes itself for granted, it's over. You're already sliding away. Every church or every move of God must be maintained by the pioneer spirit. The moment we stop pioneering, sacrificing, pushing through, is the moment that we are on the slippery slide to religion. Well, into this religious environment, the Holy Spirit was bypassing these mainstream movements and raising up people from grassroots level. You see, at this time, uh, the King James Bible was still relatively new. People could read the Bible for themselves. You might think, well, so what? Well, at that time, it was amazing that people could, because before they'd been told by pastors and priests what to believe. But now they could check it out for themselves by reading the Bible. And a group of people seeking the Lord with their hearts, 
began to rise up. The Baptists began to grow. And believing in heart conversion and, and believers' baptism. Also at this time, a number of people grew that were known as the seekers. They were so repelled by all the coldness or seeming coldness of Christianity around them and the, the fighting Christians, fighting Christians, or so they called themselves, the, the civil war, the destruction, the death, the wars, the violence, the bigotry, that they would just come together and they would meet in secret in the woods and places and they would just seek the Lord. That's why they were called seekers. They had seekers meeting and they were seeking for the Holy Spirit to come and to touch them because they believed what the Bible said that in that hour the Holy Spirit will teach them. They pushed away from learning and academic learning that at that time was, was, was very cold and they just wanted to seek the face of God and the Holy Spirit began to visit these seekers, these these Christians who were non-denominational in secret meetings, seeking the face of the Lord. And the prophetic touch came upon them. Something was beginning to stir. Uh, other groups like the Ranters were there, and they also—I mean—they went a little bit too extreme. Sometimes, you know, the revival can get into extremities. And these guys, I mean, they would seek the Lord. The power of God would come upon them, and they, and they would go into ecstasy and power. Um, but after a while, they got a little bit too—they—they they, they weren't grounded in good truth. But the reason I say talk about these is that George Fox, as a young man, began to meet with these types of people. And uh, he, began to, he began to seek the Lord himself. He was disturbed that all these Christians who were professing to be true and killing one another in battles just didn't seem right for them. He said, I understood that they did not possess what they professed. And during, as a young man, he went through great deep despair and discouragement the, the, the state of the English Christianity and the fighting and the civil war made him feel like giving up. Sometimes when you look at what's going on in our world or in nations or even in this country, in Europe, you can look at it with despair and even feel like, well, who can turn the tide of what's taking place? Often before a revival takes place, there is a period in those that God is going to raise up of pioneers of great inward mourning and sadness as they look out and feel sensitively what's going on. So many times when the church isn't in revival, it's desensitized to what's going on. You know, a, 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 a candidate for the mayor can say he's going to turn London into a beacon, of, a beacon of light for Islam. And many Christians just shrug their shoulders. They're not, they don't lose any sleep over it. They don't, they don't cry out for the Lord to bring a visitation of his Holy Spirit and salvation to London. They might go, oh, well, maybe I won't vote for him. But they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not, as long as they're okay, as long as their world around them and it doesn't impinge on their lives. But in times of revival, people begin to see the bigger picture. They begin to look out, out instead of just looking in. And uh, George uh, Fox did this. He says, I was about 20 years of age when the attacks, spiritual attacks and depression came upon me. And some years I continued in that condition in great trouble of heart. I went to many a priest for comfort, but found no comfort from them. He spent some time with the Baptists in London and found them tender. 
One of Fox's favorite words was tender. He looked for people with tender hearts. Revival always starts in the heart, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, if we don't have tender hearts to the Holy Spirit, we're in problem. If you have a hard heart, then you'll become a legalist. You'll become a law, lawyer. Um, not lawyer, sorry. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. It's not true. <laughs> you won't become a lawyer. You'll, you'll, become a, you'll become a legalist. You'll become into the law. This is why Jesus, when they said, oh, the law says you can divorce your wife. And Jesus said that was given to you because of the hardness of your heart. If you have a soft heart, you don't need the law. And they were, they were full of Pharisees fighting. And, and he was looking for tender hearts. Didn't care what denomination they came from. Did they have tender hearts? Were they open to the Lord? Were they sensitive to what was going on in the, in the nation? And during the time of the civil law, civil war, it says, heartbroken by the condition of the land and his own life, Fox continued, this is him speaking, continued about a year in great sorrow and trouble. I walked many nights by myself. I fasted much, walked about abroad in solitary places for many days and often took my Bible and sat in hollow trees and lonesome places till night came on. And frequently in the night walked mournfully about myself. For I was a man of sorrows in the time of the first workings of the Lord in me. In this period of inward tribulation and sorrow, God was forging a prophetic ministry that would rise up and confront the things that were breaking his heart. Sheltered and hidden in the hand of the Lord at these times, he saw the evils as clearly as only a prophet of God can. And true to prophetic form, the pain and despair often nearly broke him. If at times you're overwhelmed by despair or sadness over the condition of a loved one that's not yet saved or a nation, understand that God can use that to forge something in you. I think that God is raising up prophets again amongst us. And these prophets, prophets have tender hearts. Tender hearts. And so when they look at things, they see things and respond to things in the purity of God. So things where desensitized Christians with harder hearts just shrug their shoulders. These prophets that the Lord is raising up amongst us have tender, tender hearts. And so when they see something, when they see an evil... It impacts them in what we might think is, is uh, an over-the-top way. But actually, it's part of their prophetic calling. But God will take us through this time of great mourning and concern. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept. He, the disciples didn't. They were like, what's the problem, Jesus? Jerusalem, the holy city. He wept. His heart was so soft because he saw Jerusalem, what was going on in Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem would not come to him. Jesus had a tender heart. And so if you go through these things, don't, there's a positive outcome. You turn your tenderness and your sorrow, turn it into intercession. Turn it into ministry. Turn it in. Turn it outwards to, to make a difference. So the Holy Spirit was moving upon him. And um, he began to preach and teach to a heavy met. He was a street preacher, just like the guys that were out last night, yesterday. He was out there in the streets, whoever he met, he would share the gospel with him. And God's anointing was, was upon him. And he spent time with these seekers and these, these ranters. And soon his ministry began to grow as people realized that he had a voice to the nation. And those that began to follow his ministry, he called them friends. 
Jesus said that you're no longer my servants, you're my friends. And George Fox, who was looking for tender hearts, those that, that took his teaching and said, hey, what you've got to say, we, we want to do, we want to follow the ministry of the Lord in you. And he said, well, what, should we start a new denomination? And he said, do you know what? You're friends. And that's the beginning of the Quakers. Do you know another name for the Quakers is the Society of Friends? You see, all of this comes out of, of this working of the Lord in this man and, and others. And they began to meet, but they were based on Scripture, not like the Raptors. And they just began, they just wanted to meet with the Lord. They just wanted the Holy Spirit to touch them in the midst of this horrendous almost disintegration of a nation with brother fighting against brother. They sought the sensitivity of them. You would think in such hard times that such sensitive people wouldn't exist, would you? But they do. God raises them up and they would seek him. And the Holy Spirit, in these times, they would just wait on the Lord, often silently, waiting for God to move. And when God came, somebody would, would prophesy or, or speak a word of God. And it was powerful. It was powerful. It wasn't just some, as in some Quaker meetings today, today, where they sit in silence and someone just gives their little opinion when they want to. It wasn't like that. It was, it was like a Pentecostal meeting where we're waiting on the Lord, seeking his word for our lives. That's what it was like. And at the time, the Holy Spirit would come upon these groups and they would quake. And people would know about these meetings. And so they were, they were laughed at. And uh, well, a judge started it when he was persecuting some of them. He called them Quakers because they quaked under the power of God. Look how the Holy Spirit gave him a vision of the nature of the lost. He said, I went back to Nottingham. And there the Lord showed me the natures of those things which were hurtful on the outside and which were in the hearts and minds of wicked men. He showed me the natures of dogs, swine, vipers of Sodom and Egypt, Pharaoh, Cain, Ishmael, Esau. The natures of these I saw within people. I cried to the Lord saying, why should I be seeing this? I was never addicted to commit these evils. And the Lord answered that it was needful that I should have a sense of all conditions. How else could I speak to all conditions? So village by village, he began to preach the gospel and his followers followed him. He was persecuted. Many times he would sleep out in the open. He was whipped and beaten up, stoned, set on by mobs, imprisoned. And he believed in his followers that every time they were persecuted, it was a major spiritual breakthrough for the gospel. When they were persecuted, they were like Paul when he was in prison and started to, uh, started to praise the Lord. And when they praised the Lord, um, that they thought, yes, we're worthy to be persecuted. They were pacifists. Quakers are well-known pacifists. And they were pacifists at that time because they said to themselves, we're not fighting in the Civil War. We're fighting for men and women's souls. Our, our battle is spiritual. And they were the most unpolitically correct group you could ever meet. They loved to preach loudly. And uh, they would not bunch an inch in their religion uh, and what they believed. Um, as the Quakers grew into these groups, uh, they began to be uh, identified by, by their plain dress. You could tell a Quaker and also their hats. If you ever had Quaker oats in some of the packets, you can see a picture. That's the Quaker. That's what they were like when they were first formed. And they would wear these hats. And one of the things that they were known of is they refused to remove their hats. In those days, when you said hello to somebody or you passed somebody, you'd take your hat off. 
Well, they basically said, we're not taking our hats off to anybody but Jesus. That's how radical they were. And so they would, they would end up getting punched because it was so rude. But they didn't care. They were preaching the gospel. Now, they moved in signs and wonders. Um, and uh, they, they moved prophetically. Um, Fox would write prophecies in letters to uh, Oliver Cromwell when he was the protector, basically like a king. When Oliver Cromwell, after Charles I had been executed, took over, um, Fox would write him prophetic letters holding him account to the word of the Lord. These people weren't afraid to hold politicians' accounts. They weren't out there to court politicians because they weren't, they weren't politicians. They were out there to speak the thus saith the Lord. And they did it boldly, and they weren't worried whether the politicians liked them or didn't like them. They were like the Elishas of old. Actually, Cromwell had a very soft spot for George Fox because he could sense that God's hand was on him. And, and, um, and, and they were lobbying as well as saving souls. They, they spoke about policies and the poor, and they believed in the separation of the church and state, but they believed that they were like Elijah to speak to them. Great signs and wonders took place. And uh, th this movement grew and grew and grew. It began to explode after the civil wars in 1653 to 4. They had house churches, what we would call cell churches today, springing up all over the, all over the nation. And there was revival taking place. Now, Quakers had a very strong belief that you should treat everybody exactly as the Sermon of the Amount tells you to do. So to them, integrity was their word. And so this, this, this meant that as they did their businesses and their work, they refused to charge, charge higher than they felt was fair. They, they would never, ever deceive anybody. In, they would rather lose money than lose integrity. And because they did this, their businesses were blessed because God put their faith always first. People used to specifically ask where the Quaker shop was. Or was there any Quaker tradesmen in this town? Because they knew that although they'd get the gospel, they'd have to sit through that. They would definitely get the gospel. They knew they would be treated fairly. And wealth began to flow into the Quaker movement. And some envious businessmen complained saying, if we let these Quakers alone, they will take the trade of the nation out of our hands. By 19, 1690, they were the largest non-conformist group in Great Britain. And so you can see the influence that they were having because they would not, they would not be shaken in their faith. But they were honest and they wore their heart on their sleeves and they began to grow. When persecution came, as, as it did, many of the Quakers, as I've mentioned uh, uh, before, took their message to America. In fact, Fox went to America in 1671, and they, uh, and they began, many of them went over because they wanted a place where they could start a society where these freedoms that they believed in, they believed in religious freedom, they believed in equality, they believed in peace, 
And so they took the Quaker views, William Penn, as I mentioned, and started this holy experiment in Pennsylvania. For example, in 1684, 7,000 Quakers had emigrated from Britain to Pennsylvania, and that's a lot for that time. And the Quaker principles are still at the heart of the greatness of the United States of America. If it hadn't been for the Quakers going over there, then America would have probably gone the same way as Britain and had its own national religion, you know, like the Church of England or the, Luther, or the Lutheran Church. But it was the Quakers that believed in people's conscience and, and freedom that allowed something different to arise in, in America. Now, I've talked about the Christian uh, business ethics, but many of the, the banks that we might know today were of Quaker origin. For example, you ever heard of Lloyd's? That was formed by Quakers. Ever heard of Barclays? That was formed by Quakers. And they were great Christian banks with Christian principles in their early days. And God prospered them. And people did business with them because they knew that they would get a fair deal. Also, they were concerned with <clears throat> such things as... Um, it doesn't look like I'm going to get to the second person, but that, that's all right. Can it? <clears throat> they were concerned with the poor. They, they were concerned with... Um, people that, that, were, that were in prison. Um, have you ever heard of Cadbury's chocolate? Quaker. Round trees. Quaker. And those sweets, the round trees and the Cadbury's and fries, and you're going to go to the shop, aren't you, after and get those. Uh, have you ever had a fries um, Turkish delight? If you've, if you've never bought one of those little fries Turkish delights and that sort of purple thing, you need to buy one. I can't have any more because I'm a diabetic, but just you having one will make me feel better. You can have it on my behalf. Well, they were so worried about the alcoholism that was rife in England that they said, we've got to do something. We need an alternative to alcohol that they can enjoy. And that's when they invented hot chocolate. So these sweet factories started by drinking chocolate and they began to give that to the poor, hoping that they'd get fat instead of, you know, Liver problems, I guess, but they didn't know it. They didn't think like that at the time, did they? They didn't think of that time. And so, and so these sweet factories came. You can still go to, to places like um, Round Trees and Bourneville and visit these places. And you can see that the factories and the places that made the chocolate, how well they looked after all of their, all of their laborers. Um, they had an incredible ministry. For example, if you've ever heard of prison, people that said the prisons need to be changed, like the famous Elizabeth Fry. Anybody heard of Elizabeth Fry? A great reformer of prisons. She was a Quaker and related to the Fry family that do those wonderful Turkish delight things. Well, I think they still do it. They've probably been brought up by Nescafe or something, or Nestle or something. But anyway, the first mental care homes were brought. Now, I mention all of this just using one move of God. Now, that move of God was not, to begin with, about mental institutes, drinking chocolate, banks, business, uh, democracy, and politics. It wasn't about that. It was about the Holy Spirit and soft hearts. It was about preaching the Gospels and conversion. But what happens when revival comes is that revival will, will have its side effects. I really can't go to him in detail, but I will mention John Wesley. And I've got a whole chapter on John Wesley and a whole chapter on Whitfield. And they began the Methodist movement in the 1700s. And when they began to preach, 
Whitfield and Wesley. Well, Wesley went off to be a missionary in America to save the, England, uh, the Indians. He wasn't even born again. He went over. The, he, just, he believed in law and holy rules, but he wasn't even born again. Uh, and when he came back, he got born again. Some Baptists helped him get born again by reading some of Luther's uh, Galatians. And so he got born again. And when he came back, Whitfield uh, had been kicked out of the churches. So he preached in the streets and he preached in the, uh, in the fields. And soon thousands of people were coming out. They would never darken one of the church's doors, but they were in the field. People were being hit under the power of God as Whitfield was preaching and Wesley began to preach like that. As they were preaching, you could hear thuds as people fell out of trees. They were in the trees for a better view. This is true. In the trees. And Wesley says, and you could hear the thud, thud as the power of God hit them. That they fell out of the trees. And people, as, they, as he preached, people would fall, into, fall down and they would be like rigid. For hours, just under the power of God, this wave of evangelism. And not only evangelism, but Wesley believed in cell groups. He got people uh, to get together in what he called classes. Because he said you need, because he didn't want to start a denomination. It ended up one, but he didn't want to do that. For many years, he resisted it. He said, that's not my role. But he said, I want you to gather in groups of 12. Can you believe that? I mean, it's all there in the chat, in groups of 12. And in these groups of 12, you're going you're gonna to hold one another accountable. You're going to ask how your soul is. You're going to ask how you've been walking with the Lord in the week, what problems you've faced. And you're going to keep one another hot for God. And he, and he did all this. And, and it's all there in the chapter if you want to read it. But what happened was, out of this revival, the next generation saw tremendous changes. Not only do many Non-Christian historians even say that the Methodist revival prevented a revolution in England like what was taking place in France during those times, but it paved the way for generations of Christian influence. When we look at the 1800s and authentic Christianity, remember it's always authentic Christianity. In the 1800s, a lot of the great works, for example, William Wilberforce, and, and everything he headed up with the Christians, it was the Christians that were mainly behind the freeing of the slave trade and the churches and the Methodists. Well, William Wilberforce, he, would, he got born again in the Methodist revival in a chapel. Because he got born again, he began to see. In fact, he was going to go into the ministry. He remained an Anglican, but he was going to go into the ministry. And someone, and someone said to him, don't do it. Take your faith and save the people that you know need to be saved. And all these different things out of the Methodist revival. As, as people, as waves of people got saved. Of course, all these people got saved were in different jobs. Businessmen, influences, politics. And when they had the change of heart, that influenced the workplace that they were in. Of course, we should petition government. Of course, we should stand up for Christian values. But you know, really, the only way to change the society is through winning souls. It's the only way. Because if we don't, and the Christian church just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, then less people are going to be interested in what we've got to say. Less people are going to be walking in the power of the born-again spirit, and our influence is going to wane. And so what we really need, and God has visited this nation so many times when it looked like it was all over. You see, when it looks like it's all over, that's when it's time for the revival. That's when it's time to turn the tide. And revival, if Jesus had never come, there would have never been any revivals. There'd have been no day of Pentecost. 
There would not be none of the revivals that took place in the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. There would be none of the revivals right through church history all the way around the world. South America wouldn't be like waves. I remember going with Colin. We were speaking about Colin being in Brazil and Christian was there with us. And, and we, we was in the 90s and we remember in Sao Paulo, Colin was, was given the privilege to address in the streets literally two million people. Plus it was on radio to other March for Jesuses in Brazil. And I remember sort of like standing on the platform, this huge street, and two million is a lot of people. And so you can imagine how far back they went. It went on and on and on, a sea of people. And some of them were so far back, they wouldn't be, right, the streets winding around, they wouldn't, they had to listen to radios to hear his message. And he addressed two million people. Well, you, take, you, you go back, you know, 30, 40 years to Sao Paulo, you, you had nothing like that. Souls, souls. And because of that, two million people can influence a lot of schools, a lot of businesses, a lot of workplaces, a lot of politics, not because, just because they're Christians. And so revival, having said everything I've said over these weeks and we come now to a close, we need another revival. But if we're going to have another revival, and this is, this is why I've sort of like backed off from speaking for revival for a while because I'm sick and tired of hearing people talk about revival when we just need to do it. And uh, it's like Colin says, he won't mind me using his illustration because it's so good. He says, you know, time and time again you get this. You get people saying, revival's just round the corner. 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 Circle, circle, circle. And also people love prophesying revival, but very few people are prepared to pay the price for revival. And we need the hearts of George Fox. It starts in the hearts, our hearts. That sensitivity, that boldness, that, that faith in Christ, that love of mankind. God give us a bunch of George and Georgina foxes, male and female. That's called, God raise us up. God do the work in our hearts like he did in that man. Because as much as we're going to keep working in politics and society and education, that Christian influence will remain. In the end, we know, in the end, it's all about being born again. And the more people we get born again, the more service we are doing to society. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the teaching that we've had over this period where we've been very grateful that you did come. And we've been thinking about the influence. So often people forget what you, your teaching, and your disciples, your authentic disciples, have done in Christian nations for centuries, changed nations, blessed nations, salt and light and revivals. But we don't forget what you've done, Lord. And we rejoice in our Christian heritage, but we also know that we have a heritage of revivals and that unless a revival comes again to this nation, it will get darker and darker and darker. Help us, Lord, in this great church that you've given us, not to take things for granted, not to take the apostolic mandate for granted or the apostolic teaching for granted or even the cell vision for granted. But help us see that what we have here is a wineskin, ready to be filled with the wine of the gospel. What we have here, Father, is a wineskin that should, you, should we bring ourselves to a place of revival, we can multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply and the wineskin won't break. 
the nets won't break because you've given us a vision that can grow as fast as you want and as fast as souls are saved. Thank you that you did come. We don't take you for granted, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.